Hi, this is DebtWire Managing Editor Andrew Ragsley. Welcome to the latest edition of our DebtWired podcast. On this episode, we are digging into niche investing with Raphael Shore, partner and deputy CIO at High Vista Strategies. High Vista is a specialist alternative investment firm with approximately $5 billion in AUM and a track record of helping institutional investors access high alpha, difficult to identify, hard to access investment opportunities. On the podcast, Deputy Editor Reshmi Basu and Raphael talk about niche investing concepts, how to differentiate between niche and private credit markets. Conversation also touches on geopolitical risk and if volatility can be good for niche investing. Raphael, thank you so much for being here. Rashmi, it's a true pleasure. Thank you for having me. Can you delve into High Vista's investment strategy? What are the differences between the niche credit market and the private credit market? Happy to answer that. I would I would talk about it broadly as the direct lending market, which is the mainstay of private credit, versus more opportunistic parts of the credit markets or, or what you referred to as the niche credit markets. The direct lending markets are characterized by hundreds, if not thousands, of transactions that are broadly similar one to each other, one to the next, one to each other. And Direct lenders build efficient lending machines that are capable of making many loans where, you know, loan number 999 looks pretty similar to loan number 1,000. By contrast, the opportunistic parts of the credit market are all about the nuance and finding the off-the-run opportunities, maybe the opportunities that fell between the cracks of the more organized markets. Our focus is squarely on the opportunistic part of the private credit markets, and we're just trying to find the areas where we think there's the highest return for an appropriate level of risk. So so really focused on that ratio of return versus risk. And that really requires specialized sourcing networks and the ability to underwrite a broader variety of opportunities. Can you lay out some of the misperceptions surrounding niche alternatives, niche credit strategies? I mean, how difficult is it for niche alternative investors, such as High Vista, to find opportunities? Yeah, great questions. Let me start with the first question around misperceptions. I think the greatest misperception is around the role that these nichier or opportunistic strategies can play in an investor's portfolio, you hear the word niche or you hear opportunistic and you think, well, that probably doesn't mean a significant portfolio role. I mean, it's niche after all, but it's actually quite the contrary, where investors really do need to find these sorts of off-the-run opportunities that can offer them high returns and diversification to their equities. I mean, the environment today's obviously challenging for investors. There's a lot of geopolitical risk, inflation risk, and overall low real returns. And we think that this kind of opportunistic credit strategy is really important for investors who want to find 
a diversified source of equity-like returns. With regard to the second question, uh, how difficult is it? I think it's not difficult per se. You need to have experience, you need to have a sourcing network, and you need to have, I think, pattern recognition that comes with a history of having been involved in opportunistic markets and niche markets. We've got a great team at Hivis that we've been doing this for a long time, for 16 plus years. And we've seen a lot in that time and we've become much wiser. And so we think we're really well positioned to invest in these opportunistic credit markets. And so we don't think of it as being particularly difficult as long as one sets themselves up with the right resources. So what are the advantages to this type of strategy? And then what are the disadvantages? Starting with advantages, I think that an opportunistic approach to private credit investing allows investors to target equity-like returns without taking unreasonable amounts of risk. It just has a great risk-reward proposition for investors. The biggest disadvantage is that it takes time to build out the strategy, and it's not the sort of thing that an investor can wake up one day and say, hey, I want to build a billion-dollar portfolio of opportunistic credit, and I want to do it overnight. It, it, It takes time. And for some investors, they want to be able to invest rather quickly and want to move the needle. They have large pools of capital to manage, and they'll find it more difficult to build the portfolio to the scale that they need it. How are these deals structured then? Are there tight covenants? I mean, how do these deals differ from more broadly syndicated loans? Yeah, so, so one of the things about investing opportunistically in private credit is that every investment strategy, every, every sub-strategy is a bit unique and every credit is a bit unique. And that's what keeps the opportunity interesting and compelling. So it's hard to characterize all of the opportunities that we'll pursue at High Vista as being of one type. All that said, it's fair to say that our focus continues to be on opportunities where the lender and borrower will have a bilateral relationship and the lender can customize the terms, create substantive covenants, and then enforce those covenants when needed in a way that more competitive markets simply wouldn't allow. Now, we're seeing a lot of volatility in the market now. What lessons did you learn from the 2020 distressed cycle, which was pretty short-lived? Did you change your investment strategy during the pandemic? And what opportunities did it create for you? Yeah, so you, you can think of the 2020 distress cycle as really two different things. The first stage is the financial market panic, which we witnessed in March of 2020. And there, that was largely a mark-to-market event where there were many good credits that simply traded away from their fundamental values. And that was a great opportunity, actually, for those who had the wherewithal, both in terms of capital, but also in terms of access to those opportunities to pounce. You need the systems, you need the relationships, and need the, I would say, discipline to be able to take advantage of those opportunities, because it really was a short-lived dislocation. The second part of what you call the distress cycle, I think is the real distress. 
And the pandemic really had a lot of winners and a lot of losers, as we know. There are sectors who actually, sectors that performed better than ever before with accelerated adoption curves. And there are other sectors that really suffered as a result of broken down supply chains and the move away from in-person dining and other service business models. So that sort of longer term dispersion where some businesses did really well and some did really poorly reminded us of two very important lessons. One is that diversification is always helpful in a stressful environment because it's hard to predict in advance which things will do well and which things won't. You don't really know what the next crisis is going to be until it hits. And when that crisis hits, it's different than any previous crisis. That's just the nature of these things. And so you want to have that broad diversification. The second important lesson for us was that it's really important for investors to analyze risk and understand what the particular risks are in any given investment. That's particularly true for credit. If credit is to be a ballast for navigating a stormy sea, it must be absolutely rock solid. And that's why we love finding credit investments that are uncorrelated or have a low correlation to broader markets. And we look for security, seniority, and strong governance. And going back even further, how did the 2008 global financial crisis help shape High Vista's investment and strategies? The financial crisis was the great event of my investment career. And, and I would say the same is true for most of my peers. We should start by saying that it was obviously a very difficult event for many with a lot of suffering at the human level, a true tragedy. From an investor's point of view, it was a great time to learn about risk and opportunity. Again, I would emphasize both, learning about the risk and the opportunity. Investors who had a well-thought-out approach to investing and to managing risk were able to preserve capital and their sanity. And preserving capital and sanity proved invaluable as there were manifold opportunities that followed. We had a very strong, let's say, risk framework going into the financial crisis, which helped us navigate an unprecedented time and allowed us to take advantage of some of the opportunities that presented themselves in the months and even the years following the financial crisis. Moving to the present, the global markets are currently in uncharted territory, given the Russia-Ukraine crisis. How are you positioning yourself given the geopolitical risk? Like the GFC or the recent pandemic, it's a good reminder that we live with a lot of uncertainty. That's true on the human level, but it's also true professionally as investors. We, we, we constantly live in a world that is uncertain. And our credit strategy focuses on finding investments that we believe to be robust and that can withstand a pretty tough stress test. We also look to build a diversified, approach to credit investing, where we'll have six or 12 different strategies embedded in a portfolio, because we recognize that there are always those unknowns. In these kinds of stressful times, the things that seemed obvious a month ago are no longer obvious, and the things that we had 
you know, a, a month ago that we might have doubted have now become very true. A lot changes very quickly. I, I think just to cite one example is who could have predicted a month ago that oil would be $130? Just, it's just, you know, just didn't seem in the cards. And I think if investors had read, read the political wins correctly, there are obviously a lot of opportunities to reposition one's portfolio, whether it's in credit or other asset classes. But it's hard to see those things in advance. And it's just important to make sure that in credit in particular, a portfolio can withstand a really robust set of stress tests, which is how we think about underwriting, and that you don't put all your eggs in one basket. You want to make sure that even if you found what might have looked like the greatest strategy, it, that it's only a piece of the portfolio. You know, for, for example, obviously there are people who uh, had actual direct exposure, credit investors even, direct exposure to Ukraine or Russia, and that might have made sense as a small part of a diversified portfolio. But you know, if anyone had made that the mainstay of their portfolio, they would, they would obviously be feeling uh, a lot of pain right now. And a lot of uncertainty about what those recoveries will be. You know, and to your point, it's always challenging to predict the market. But then how does High Vista balance the risk with generating attractive financial returns, given that there just are so many unknowns at the moment? Yeah, I, th- I think the best way to answer that might be through way of example. There are so many unknowns, but yet there are many knowns. Let me, let me give you one example. We, we've been financing legal judgments for plaintiffs who simply need a financial bridge to receiving their award. That's the kind of activity which will go on day in, day out, and is really disconnected from oil being at $130, Russia invading Ukraine, or a pandemic for that matter. It's much more about finding the borrower who needs a specific solution and helping them meet that solution. Let me give you one more example. Another example would be we've been financing real estate developers who have very strong portfolios of finished uh, uh, condo developments, but have a short-term financing need and are able to collateralize our loan with finished condo projects. So these are very high quality assets at, at reasonable loans to value. But the reason that those borrowers need a solution relates to their particular um, finances at a given moment in time. They need a solution. And that solution can come in a variety of forms. And they'll need a partner who can help them achieve their specific objectives. The collaterals rock solid. The loans are very conservatively underwritten. and Real estate could go up or down. Interest rates can go up. Inflation could, you know, continue to rear its ugly head. But those loans will be rock solid because they're not really about an overall macroeconomic risk. They're really about a very particular situation where a borrower has a very specific financial need. Investors are seeing days where the markets can be down as much as eight hundred points. Is volatility a good or a bad for niche credit strategies? It's mostly good in the sense that in volatile times, there are a lot more opportunities. For example, the real estate developer case that I just mentioned before, 
it's much easier to find real estate developers who are willing to take a an expensive short-term financing in a time of great volatility. Their needs are great. They still have a great asset that they need to finance. And it, it makes a lot of sense for them to work with someone like us and offer us what could be very attractive risk return from our perspective. And for them, it solves a real problem. So, so from the perspective of sourcing opportunities, I think volatility is mostly, mostly a positive. That said, we don't need volatility. It really, the, the kind of credit investing that we've pursued is an all weather strategy. And in better times and in worse times, we always find what to do. But on, on balance, I would say it's a positive. How do you expect inflationary pressure, a potential interest hike, investor flight to safety impact credit markets in 2022? You know, what other red flags do you see on the horizon for credit investors? Yeah, great question. I, I think interest rates are not a primary concern for us because most of what we do is very short dated. So we're talking about one to three year maturities and often floating rate. So I'm not particularly worried in anything that we do about interest rate volatility or interest rates rising. I think the for many credit investors, ourselves included, the thing that you have to pay the most attention to is asset valuations. And investors really need to think carefully about what kinds of assets they're financing, how durable the value of those assets is. And, you know, to cite just one example, you could think about the technology sector where many assets have gone up five or 10x in value in a short period of time only to retrace that movement over the course of an either even shorter period of time. And so an investor financing a profitless company with no hard assets would need to think really carefully about what an appropriate loan to value would be. And so the quality of the asset really does matter in this kind of environment. Think about the durability of cash flows, durability of, of value how useful is this asset? How proven is it? How much do we know about how we'll perform in a variety of environments? That's part of our process is, is really just thinking about how useful these assets are and, and how much we know about how, the, how they will perform in a range of scenarios. In terms of the red flags on the horizon, I think investors have to pay attention to rapid shifts in the overall real economy. And, and how those shifts might impact asset prices. And, and we've seen, I think, quite a bit of uncertainty around things like, for example, return to office. You know, will office buildings of the future be like office buildings of the past or, or, or might work broader work from home trends uh, broadly impact office real estate? And those kinds of trends, I think, still have a lot of uncertainty around them. People don't really know how the, those sorts of assets will perform, office assets, that is. And I think that's true for a number of other sectors as well. Think about retail and how, how much has changed in, in a relatively short period of time. And we, we still don't know, you know what, what the final chapter of internet adoption you know, for, for shoppers looks like and, and what impact that will have over a longer term 
on both retail inventory values, but but more importantly, over uh, real estate. So what new 2022 investment opportunities could arise for High Vista? What industries are you looking at? Biotech, energy, you just mentioned retail. Yeah, I think, I think those are all interesting examples. Let me focus on biotechnology and retail. Biotechnology is definitely interesting. It's been a very challenged sector, both in 2021 and year-to-date 2022. It's a vast opportunity set, hundreds of public companies, hundreds of private companies. And over time, what I expect to see is that if the markets do not bounce from this current drawdown, many of those companies will face financing challenges where they will need to seek private financings. Some of those financings will be equity and some will be debt. I mean, there are many biotechnologies that have strong assets that are financeable. We've been involved in, for example, pharmaceutical royalties for a little over a decade. And many of those are, many of the counterparties are biotechnology companies who are sitting on very valuable intellectual property uh, or royalties that they're able to monetize through what's, I would call, fairly organized and robust niche market of pharmaceutical royalty financing. So I, I think that could be a really interesting opportunity in 2022, 2023, depending on how markets play out. Retail is a story that's been going on for many years and will continue uh, to to evolve. We'll see many retailers who go bankrupt. That's just the nature of a hyper-competitive industry with increasing stress brought on by technology adoption. For credit investors, it presents some interesting opportunities around financing inventory, where many retailers find themselves in a position where the best source of financing is really asset-backed financing. Given that the cash flow of those retailers is a bit uncertain, banks and syndicated lenders won't necessarily want to lend a lot against a relatively unstable cash flow profile. But specialty lenders who focus on collateral value can lend against retail value of, of clothing or sporting goods or other sorts of merchandise. So that that does present an interesting opportunity set. And I think it's a an opportunity set that we expect to continue over the next number of years as the retail sector evolves. How is ESG impacting your strategy? We've always had a lens of focusing on finding assets and businesses that are socially useful. And so ESG is not really new in concept for us because we've always focused on that framework. And it's it's the first thing we look at when we're looking at financing a new type of asset or involving ourselves in a new niche credit market is what's the social utility? Is this doing more? Is this, is this helping in the world in some broad sense or is it in, in any way, uh, just a zero-sum game or some sort of predatory activity, which which we have zero interest in. ESG's obviously evolved a lot and, and continues to evolve. 
and investors are spending a lot of time thinking about which parts of ESG really, I think, speak most to them. And so just in conversations with peer firms and, and a number of investors on a global basis, you really see a lot of different approaches to ESG. And we think there's, this is a tremendous learning period where, where a lot of investment firms are figuring out the right approach to ESG that works for their business and for their clients. And we're no exception to that. Last question. Why the name High Vista Strategies? So the origins of the name are a longer story, but it's a great name for us today as we have great vistas, both physically and metaphorically. Physically, we sit in Boston in the Back Bay and have great views of the city of Boston, the harbor, the Charles River, and Cambridge. And you would have to come visit to see it for yourself, but it truly is a beautiful vista. But more important than that is the metaphorical high vista. We tried to take a really high-minded and broad view of the investment landscape and look across asset classes and across geography on a global basis for the most compelling investment opportunities. We invest broadly and we help our clients access a broad range of opportunities. Raphael, thank you so much. This was a great discussion and thanks for providing us a lens into niche investing. Rashmi, thanks for having me. I hope we can do this again soon. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Don't forget, follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and check us out on the Wistia platform.